0: Yeah, that's good. All right. Well, happy Easter, everyone. Welcome to Hiawatha Church. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. Thanks so much for uh, coming today, whether you're uh, one of our regular attenders or whether you're visiting with uh, friends or family or just maybe walked in yourself. We're, we're glad you joined us on, on Easter Sunday. Uh, so welcome. Welcome. Uh, We are going to continue right where we left off last Sunday. We're in a a sermon series around the Gospel of John. So if you're just joining, we've been preaching through John for about a year and a half and are approaching the end now. And today we'll be in John chapter 20, verses 19 to 23, looking at another one of Jesus' post-resurrection appearances, uh, this time to the disciples. So last week we saw how Jesus uh, tore out of the tomb, kicked the tomb door down, and, and appeared to Mary Magdalene and uh, just shared himself with her, and, and we learned theology through that. And then Mary ran off to tell the, the disciples, Jesus' uh, close friends, his disciples, uh, about it. And uh, we, don't under, we don't see what that looked like exactly. It's all in the white space of, uh, of John, but that happened. And then today, Jesus is going to uh, appear uh, to them as well. So, uh, if you have a Bible or phone app, want to turn to uh, John 20, 19-23, p- please feel free to do that. This will be on screen here uh, as well. But today we're going to look at uh, when Jesus finds us in locked rooms, uh, which is kind of the occasion for today's passage. And it's something that John chooses to highlight that Matthew, Mark, and Luke uh, don't. And so it's like a lot of John is, is unique, not contradictory, but, but unique. This is something for us really to underline, I think, and highlight and learn theology from Uh, today on Easter and in any day Uh, so it's pretty cool all right verse uh, 19 to start let's read the whole thing in in full to begin on the evening of that first day of the week so it's still Easter Sunday uh, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders Jesus came and stood among them and said peace be with you after this he showed them his hands inside the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord And again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Okay, so two big things I think today's passage is kind of like... um, uh, jumping off points, essentially, uh, for reflection, uh, and m- maybe kind of like, as, as he, even as we just read this, you kind of felt it, but there's this moment of uh, revelation when Jesus appears to the disciples in the locked room, we'll start there, uh, and learn theology from that, and then there's this uh, kind of commissioning side, where he says, uh, addresses the, well, what now, uh, kind of uh, perspective, and... Um, uh, breathes on them and talks about forgiveness. We'll we'll spend some time on some of that a little bit later on as well. But first, let's start with uh, what I'm calling Easter morning magic. Uh, that time where Jesus passed through walls with his physical body. So a big part of um, uh, Jesus's post-resurrection appearances is showing that it's his body that rose. He's not a ghost. Uh, this is not just him appearing uh, it, you know, in a ghostly way, in a spiritual way. This is a physical resurrection of Jesus where it's actually the same body that was crucified and buried actually started to uh, breathe again, and his eyes were moistened. His blood was, uh, started pulsing through his veins again, and he, and he woke up from death uh, like you would from a long sleep and uh, in glory, and, he, and now, he's, now he's appearing to people. So it's a big part of why he's showing scars and, and why uh, he eats meals uh, as well after his resurrection, to show that just like we eat meals now, like it's, again, it's, it's the same thing. Uh, it's, that's, a, that's a really important piece, and we'll come to more of that actually next week too when he appears to, uh, to Thomas and, and learn more about it then. Uh, but verse 19, again, so it's Easter Sunday, uh, Jesus uh, is, uh, one thing we see in, with Mary Magdalene and then now, is he's at pains to find people, which is really cool. Uh, he's not wasting time. You know, he rises from the dead and immediately goes to find people to say, here I am, and I love you, and I'm alive, and now you have hope as well. Because uh, just like I died, you will die, and just like I rose, if you believe in me, uh, in the wake of my resurrection, you will have, you will have uh, life physically in the future as well, eternally. So in verse 19, the disciples were together, though, and before they kind of had this moment, they're, they're fearful for their lives, thinking, you know, what the Jewish leaders did to Jesus and crucifying him, now they're going to come after us. That's, that's probably the strategy, right? It's like they're gonna, they crucify Jesus, now they're going to come after his, his main like, leaders and followers and, and kill us as well. So they're cowering, they're afraid, they, they lock the door, and probably just counting the hours here until it happens. But then Jesus just shows up. As through walls as through a locked door, miraculously, all right? So uh, the question I want to dwell on then uh, for uh, for some time with you guys is what do you think's going through the disciples' minds at this moment? Or maybe later when they had a chance to reflect on what happened and then what would be going through yours as well? Like if this actually happened and you were there, try to smell the air a little bit and, and feel uh, what it would have been like and what kind of feelings you would have. And in one sense, there's not like one perfect right answer to that, you know? It's just, I think a lot of emotions might come from it, a lot of questions and feelings, but, uh, but to the question, what do you think is going through the disciples' minds uh, at this moment, um, I think there's a lot of, um, you know, answers to that. Besides the obvious question, I think, of, well, how? That's probably the first one. I mean, there had to be one disciple asking that, right? At least, maybe from the back corner. Like, you guys are just, I know, elated to see Jesus, and so am I, but how? Like, how did you, like, you know, we would ask at a magic show, after seeing a trick, like that's the first question you ask is, how did he do that? Um, but aside from that, I think there are a few things, and uh, again, whether or not they're thinking this in real time, it, does, it doesn't matter. I think that the, the, the way this is written, I think what God intends for us as readers even to think uh, is, is most important. So uh, I have a few of those things today I just want to walk us through uh, here uh, before we, we move on. So the first is this. Uh, Jesus was looking for us even when we weren't looking for him. So I, so I know I've said this for three weeks now, but I'm going to say it again because it's so important. In every single instance of people and Jesus interacting post-resurrection, it's Jesus who finds people, not people who find Jesus. Uh, that, that, like if you're keeping score, uh, and that's actually one good thing to kind of keep score when you read, uh, if you tally it, it's always Jesus appearing out of nowhere to people uh, who are looking for, sometimes looking for him, but they don't recognize him even. Or in this case, it's heightened because... It's Jesus finding people through walls and in locked doors. And so it's always one way where Jesus is the revealer. He's the finder, uh, not the other way around. And so a related thought from the disciples here might have been something like, he must have really wanted to be with us. No one else has ever passed through a wall to be with me before. Like this is a new kind of love, a new kind of power uh, I think uh, before we've talked, uh, maybe even in, in the ser- this uh, sermon series, about how Jesus has love and power. It's not just sentiment. Uh, Jesus, like when he goes to funerals, you know, he weeps, but then he raises the dead. It, it's sort of like he has this emotion and this uh, sentiment and love, and, and, um, and he feels, and yet he has the power to go and touch caskets and um, and little children rise from the dead, or Lazarus walks out of the tomb. Like, the, there's, the, the Gospels are full of these stories to marry those uh, two things together. So, uh, the idea with this, though, is that we're starting to see themes of God's grace, uh, and his one-way love bubble up to the surface, uh, is kind of the idea. How it's never people finding him. Uh, last week, if you weren't here for this, we talked about how it's important that when Mary and the women got there, that Jesus wasn't in the tomb waiting for them. Or when John and Paul uh, sprinted to the tomb and had that foot race. Why he wasn't in there ready to kind of like put the first place medal around one of their necks. Like he wasn't there. And that is because Jesus always finds us. Uh, He's always looking for us more than we're looking for him. There's a lot of solace and and, and grace in that. Wherever we're at spiritually um, to to remember that never changes. That that we don't graduate from that. Another related thought uh, was uh, probably uh, apparently nothing keeps him away. Uh, Even though we were doing our best to keep people out of this room, hence the locks, our efforts didn't stop him. And so uh, by by this, I mean, this is not just a metaphysical moment in the gospel story. This is a wall overcoming moment. And so yes, it's a picture of what our physical glorified bodies will be like uh, as Christians when Jesus returns and rises us from the dead. I think there's a lot of beauty in that and something to think about. But this is more, it's more than that. This is also about the nature of the gospel itself being an obstacle surmounting grace. That's what's happening here. We're, we're, we're seeing it demonstrated physically, almost like a parable. Uh, it, it is an obstacle. God's love and his grace in the gospel is an obstacle surmounting thing. Uh, that's why he passes through walls. Uh, we see this all over scripture, but just a couple of places to kind of hang your hat on something here outside the gospels is Ephesians 2, 14 to 15. Uh, Which says, for Jesus himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh, speaking of his crucifixion, the law with its commands and regulations. So he's talking in one sense here about how Jews and Gentiles, these different uh, types of people, um, couldn't interact in Old Testament times. The the, the law, the biblical law even, um, precluded it. It it said, Jews stay away from Gentiles. And so the law drives a wedge between people. But his greater point is, the law does that between us and God as well. Like when the command comes in, when law comes in, it drives a wedge. This kind of unkeepable, uh, unfully observable uh, moral thing uh, drives a wedge. It doesn't bring us close. Uh, You know, that's why the law... commanded a temple to be built with veils and walls and preclusions and washing rites and stay away from me's, don't get too close or you'll die uh, things, is that um, this way of thinking, this way of living, and God knew this, it wasn't a fail. Uh, Jesus was always his plan A, but the law came in first to be a failed system. Uh, It was something he created uh, to in part uh, be something that we would cooperate with to show that that's not how we're gonna be saved in the end. Um, And so the law... He says here, had to be put aside. When Jesus came in, the wall of the law had to be set aside for just his body, just his bloody body, just his raised and glorified body. And when that happens, the law that breeds hostility uh, is um, given a chair, given a seat. It, it, it sort of takes a back seat. It did its job in leading us to the better thing, which is Jesus. Uh, but that grace is the the wall overcoming, the veil tearing, the tomb door kicking downing uh, thing uh, it, it's the, the, our, our sin, old covenants law, distance our hard hearts, all these different obstacles is, are things that Jesus is constantly overcoming but it's interesting here in Ephesians 2 it says that thing that formerly used to mediate people in God, kind of but it always failed, uh, like, like the Ten Commandments and the law, is now being set aside by the crucifixion you can't blend them uh, you cannot do it. We uh, it, I, we always do it though. Or this is this. Is, it's natural to want to do that. So if you do, don't like feel terrible. It's just like just please see what this is saying. That you it's oil and water. Jesus with his flesh, his bloody body set aside the laws of the Bible so that now it's not do this and then you will live. It's believe in him, and you will live. Those are different, and the latter is better. And the latter is one way, not shared two way. It's one way love. Not this expectation of reciprocation and obedience. Uh, Romans eight thirty-eight to thirty-nine says, "For I am convinced that neither death nor life, angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation—that includes even concrete reinforced walls, uh, even hard hearts, even the darkest of our circumstances and anxieties and fears—will be able to separate us from the love of God." that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so, uh, lots more places we could look, but you see how all of a sudden the question of how did Jesus pass through a wall becomes much less trivial. Because asking how did Jesus pass through a wall is the same question as asking how could he save sinners so far away from God like us? Uh, the, the, The question that comes up earlier in the gospel accounts of how can a camel pass through the eye of a needle Uh, is the same question. And and the answer there is the same as as it is here. Uh, To us, it's impossible. It's impossible for for that to happen. It's impossible to manufacture that or to in some way do that or see that happen. But not with God. All things are possible with God because we're saved by his grace, uh, not our moral acuity. All right, then this last, or, or approaching last, I think last, almost last year, uh, thing, I think that they um, uh, would think here, our thinking is, is Jesus going to be upset with me? Uh, me, cowering in fear in this locked room. Or, so, so what is his, um, the master is here. Uh, our, our Lord is here. The risen, uh, risen Jesus is here. Uh, what's he going to think of us in, in this place of, um, of cowering? and disbelief and fear. So, um, so don't miss this one. This is a, this is a really big deal. This is, this is not the disciples' most shining moment. They, they clearly did not understand or believe Jesus when he said he would rise from the dead. They clearly did not understand or believe Mary Magdalene, who had just like two seconds ago told them he was alive. Uh, so th- there's a level of cowardice here in fearing the Jewish leaders uh, who would do the same to them, as I said before. Especially uh, for Peter, who if uh, you remember earlier in the story, Peter's one of the, the disciples, Peter earlier in the story said he would die for Jesus. He kind of raised his hand and, uh, and said, um, that was during the foot washing thing where, where Peter says, you'll never wash my feet, Jesus, I should wash yours. And and it's a big paradigm shift for him, he said, Jesus says, "Absolutely not. If I don't wash yours, you have no part with me." Like you have to understand, the gospel is about me serving you, not you serving me. And uh, makes a bit. And he comments on that for a bit, and then Peter's like goes back all in and says, "Actually, um, I will die for you, Jesus. I'll lay my life down for you." And Jesus says, "Really?" Uh, you know, nah. uh, and and it pumps the brakes. And um, but it's a it's a big story arc moment for Peter and for all of us. It, a paradigm shifting moment. Where and He still doesn't get it uh, here, but um, he's coming to, to, to get it. But that the gospel is really that one way. Uh, where all other gods, all other religions say, bleed for me. Show me that you have devotion. Show me you care. Serve me. Do my bidding. Do my will. The God of Christianity says, I will bleed for you. Uh, that my will is that you come to believe in me and have life in my name. Uh, th- that's my will. See how, see how different that is? It's not even like, there's, there's like no room for those to cohabitate. They, they just can't. Uh, they fight. They don't hold hands. Um, and so, uh, so Peter here, though, if you remember when he said that, it kind of seems like here in this moment he's lobbying for a little bit more self-preservation, doesn't it? He's not exactly like lining up to say, I'll die for uh, Jesus or this ideal. He's, uh, he's self-preserving. But here's the thing. So, in light of all of this, instead, this is what makes Jesus' appearance through the wall and what he does or says right when he comes through the wall Uh, so incredible. Instead of rebuke, Jesus shows his scars. Instead of rebuke, Jesus shows patience and love. He he shows restraint. Uh, He doesn't expose, he doesn't pull the blanket off and expose their nakedness uh, and their failure. Uh, he just shows his loving scars. He, he shows where he was pinned to that cursed tree. Uh, and, and that's it. Uh, and and I, th- I think it's a moment for us as readers with this, uh, uh, Christians especially, but for those of you who are not, not Christians yet too, um, is what do we, like when you sin and, and fail, who is Jesus to you in that moment? What's he like? Uh, is he disappointed with you? Is he like, oh my gosh, you know, you got to be kidding me. Uh, again, you know, I told you not to, whatever. Uh, or is he like this? Does he show you his scars constantly? And I mean in your worst moments. That, that's where like your theology kind of shows its true metal. Like is it good or bad theology, right? It's like in your worst days, is he still peace be with you? I love you. I'm coming to rescue you. Look at my scars. That's enough for you. Or is he, Bleh. you know, I, I, I'm, I'm tolerating my people, or like this is such a burden for me. Like, and it, it might sound silly uh, when I say it that way, but it, it's, it, I, I would say it's the default uh, operating mode of the heart, uh, even as Christians, to, to default to that kind of like way of thinking about God. And these stories exist for this reason, uh, to, to correct us, to, to bring it, to show us how much it's about grace. You see, if it was at all about what you do, Jesus would not appear this way to the disciples. If anything at all about our salvation in the new covenant era had to do with us on any level, Jesus's appearance here would make no sense. No sense. There's no category for this kind of grace shown towards uh, this kind of foolishness. And so, you could say here that, that I think uh, Jesus, he has a low anthropology, uh, meaning he doesn't uh, expect much of his disciples, if anything at all, because grace doesn't expect anything of us except to receive it. Uh, so again, I'll just say that the, the fact that the disciples are fearful here at wit's end, living the most unimpressive life imaginable, and Jesus still finds them with this kind of scar-showing, gracious posture, man, it's like, it's nuts, isn't it? It's crazy. And we wouldn't naturally think this without the Bible showing it, showing it to us. Uh, it is, as Jesus says, the epitome of peace for our souls. And, and this is our story, too. And so, so John 20, then, isn't uh, just, wow, Jesus passed through walls. Uh, John 20 is, Jesus passed through hell to get to me. And my best attempts at keeping Jesus away in my sin and disbelief didn't work. He overcame them. He's stronger than My sins are many. His mercy is always dialed up past our sin. And our best attempts at locking the door so God can't get in. Like, if that's not good news to weak and weary sinners like me, like I have no idea what is. You know? Again, on your worst days. Worst, not best. uh, Jesus has the key. He passes through walls. He has the will, the love, and the intent to, to get to us, um, not to crush us. All right, so this last uh, question um, is, uh, so what happens now? Uh, sometimes when I, when I read this story, I picture one of the disciples, after the euphoria of the moment dies down a bit, like looking around and saying, well, this is great, but what do we do now? You know, or something like that. Uh, I think it's an appropriate question, uh, right? After you, see, after you see Jesus, who said he's the son of God and will do this, like, well, what happens next? And Jesus addresses that in this passage. Not that it's exhaustive here in John's account, but he addresses it. He starts to talk about this, like what's going to happen. Um, he, and In fact, I want to make a whole section out of this. So uh, this is the section, I won't read this again, but uh, Jesus says, you can come of see here, Jesus says, one, he's going to send them, Uh, Two, then he breathes on them, which is kind of odd, and says, receive the spirit. But it's important because it's a callback to Genesis chapter 2 when God breathes life into Adam's nostrils, the first man. So it's a sign that recreation is happening. It's a sign that he's going to raise us from the dead as well. And then three, he gives them the authority to pronounce and grant the forgiveness of sins in the last part here in verse 23. Which, um, I don't know if you guys have read this before or not, this is a, it's kind of a weird thing uh, to to say, isn't it? Uh, He's saying to the disciples, if if you grant forgiveness, then then there will be, if you don't, if you withhold it, then it will be withheld. Jesus says something similar in Matthew, I believe it's 16 or 18, I forget which chapter, but he says, he talks about binding and loosing. Like if you apostles bind on heaven, it will be, uh, on earth rather, it will be bound in heaven. If you loose things, loosen things on earth, they will be loosed in heavens. So we're kind of like, well, what does that mean? Uh, similar idea. Here it's a little bit more clear. Um, but basically, all so don't get too tripped up on this. Basically, all he means to say is that the church, when the church preaches the gospel, the church becomes the crux, uh, the dispenser of salvation, the one that's saying, if you believe the gospel, then you are forgiven and you're saved. But if you don't, then you're not. That's all it really means. So Jesus is not then transferring authority to the church or church leadership or pastors. Um, he's sharing it with them. He, it, so it doesn't mean that the church is actually granting forgiveness, but that, that, um, that the church, especially leaders and pastors, are physical extension of God granting it. inasmuch as they lead and love and teach a pure gospel with open Bible in hand, not their own ideas, and protect theology and proclaim uh, the grace of God. Like, when that's, when that's happening and people are responding, it's actually Jesus saying to all who believe, all who believe and receive that message, forgiveness is for all people. Uh, but if there's a rejection of me in that, a rejection of my presence, a rejection of what I've done in my death and resurrection, then forgiveness is withheld because the way God is forgiving is through the shed blood of Jesus. Forgiveness comes at a cost always. But this is why, uh, I'll come back to this a little bit, but this is why it's important here to highlight that the disciples were going to be sent in the same way that Jesus was sent from the Father or from God, Um, which then begs the question, how was Jesus sent? Uh, Right? And we could probably spend all day on this, but I just, four things that come to mind, uh, quick things that, especially in the Gospel of John, we've seen in this series. So, so how was Jesus sent? How did God the Father send his son into the world? Four things. One, he did so incarnationally. That just means that he sent his son to become human. So he became like us or became like those he was going to save. The the gospel in this is God became like you so you can stop trying to become like him. That this is this is the good news of Christmas. Uh, but against it's the flip again of all other world religions. Uh, God became like you so to die for you. So stop the struggle and, and the facade and the mountain climbing. It's not impressing him. He came all the way down to stay here even. He's going to be human forever. Isn't that just a mind bender? That God's son will be a human being forever? It wasn't just like this little trial period, you know? Like 30-day trial period like Hulu. Or something like it's like he he's gonna stay human, a man for eternity. It's like nuts. Like he he, he he's gonna he's he's gonna be like us in that regard for eternity, and, and that much of, that much our mediator and advocates and um scar scarred savior, which he'll maintain those forever too. So pretty 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 wild. But I digress. All right. So incarnationally is one two. He was sent with grace and truth, with, with, again, one-way love, against the lies of the devil that says we're good enough on our own and that we don't need God. Three, he came pronouncing the forgiveness of sins. John 3 says Jesus came not to condemn, but to exonerate and save. And what I like about this is is all of a sudden what I was talking about before with church leaders being given authority to pronounce forgiveness and and, forgiveness and so forth, and to share in Jesus' thing. Like, that's kind of a, a trippy thing in and of itself. But I would say, when you start to make it more about it's actually Jesus and not the church, but it's Jesus in the church, all of a sudden this becomes good news. Because then all of a sudden you start to underline words like, anyone? Anyone can be forgiven? You know, it's, it's sort of like, it's this very universal uh, kind of like, there's no preclusions except just to receive Jesus. There's, there's no asterisks. There's nothing uh, except receiving what Christ has done uh, for us in, in dying for our sins and rising again. And so it becomes good news, ultimately, when, when applied to God. Anyone can, can be forgiven. But then the flip of that, which is the darker side, is also true, but there's, in a way, gospel in it as well. But but it, but it is to say that anyone can also not be forgiven. But But that means... Anyone who, re- who rejects Jesus. So that means that the best of people in society uh, who reject Jesus are not forgiven. You know, it, it makes it so much about against. Point is, so much about him and what he has to give and so little about how we live our lives and what we think we've done for him. Uh, that it's the crux is the forgiveness of God. That, that, that's the crux. Did Jesus rise? Did he bleed for us? Did he offer the forgiveness of sins to the nations? And yes, to all those questions. What do we do with that? that that's really what makes a person a Christian or not, uh, not anything else. All right, then number four, um, undergoing persecution. He was sent to die. All this comes at great cost to himself. In fact, the persecution becomes the means by which forgiveness, forgiveness would come. So anyway, so the idea here is the disciples would extend this ministry into the world by word and deed. Not on the exact same level, of course, but in a related and reflective way. If you read the book of Acts, you see the way the disciples' early ministry took place draws us back to Jesus symbolically. It's striking, actually, the similarities between, uh, between them. So, so again, Jesus is not transferring power and taking a back seat, but saying, my story will continue to be lived out in my people. As I was sent so will they now be. As I brought peace, so will they. As I brought grace, not law, so will they bring grace, not law. As I suffered, so they will suffer. But as healing came through my wounds, so will goodness and power flow through my people's apparent losses and their weaknesses. And many more things as well. But that's what he's saying here. And that kind of becomes our story too, as you kind of follow the story down the road, 2,000 years to where we are, but it starts with, his, uh, with these 11 disciples in this room. And that leads me to this kind of final twist here uh, on this. And um, I know I'm speaking to kind of a diverse room with this. Some of you maybe have never read this before. Others have, maybe have a 100 times. Uh, so I don't know exactly where you're at, but I'll just kind of say broadly, often when we read passages like this about, send, about being sent, about Jesus sending his disciples, uh, you could put um, Matthew 28's Great Commission where Jesus says, go and make disciples and baptize them and teach them. Uh, you could put Acts 1.8 here as well, where, where Jesus says, you are to be my witnesses here in Jerusalem, bubbling out to Judea, the province, then to Samaria, the wider province, then to the ends of the earth. Uh, you could kind of put th- those types of passages all in one bucket. And I'll say, often when we read them as Christians, we put ourselves immediately in the place of the disciples. And we place ourselves under that kind of impetus or that call to go. And the reason we do that often is because we're hardwired to look for things to do in the Bible rather than things to believe in. This is just kind of our natural bent. I kind of hinted at that a little earlier in the sermon. Even now as I read this, comment on these things now and, and read this passage today, like it's easy to think, yes, I got the gospel part, but let's talk about being sent and what that means. And now we are sent ones, but that's only the half of it. And I would argue the second half, not the first half. The first half would be that we're not the disciples in the story. Uh, Jesus, at least initially here, is not talking to you, he's talking to the eleven, which places us then outside the circle as ones who were sent to. Not immediately the, sent, the sending ones, or the sent ones, but the ones who were sent too. So John 20 is about Jesus triumphantly rising from the dead, then sending his friends to tell the world about it. And because that happened, because this is history, and not just theology, here we are in our, our small you know, corner of the world, distanced from this moment by thousands and thousands of miles, oceans, time, language barriers, and the like, and yet, most of us, in the, actually all of us, because you're hearing it today, if it's your first time hearing the gospel, you're hearing it today, but I was going to say most of us have heard and believed in Jesus uh, or because someone told us about him, because this happened. Because Jesus said to his friends, go, uh, tell someone that I'm alive. Mary Magdalene actually was the first one. Uh, then the disciples uh, get it from there, and, and they're sent, and the church is born uh, in, in the book of Acts. And because God did that, he uh, because he brought his forgiveness to us uh, through the church, through another Christian, um, we have life. And so uh, I know it's a small thing. Maybe it feels like a a big uh, paradigm shift. Maybe it feels like a small one. But it's very easy to forget. Uh, It it is um, if you don't know this yet, it's uh, a natural inclination. Like you will probably always have this rest of your life, and that's normal. uh, To read yourself into stories more than you should. Bible stories. Like, oh, this is about me, or this is for me, or this is, I need to do something now in light of this. Now that I've heard it, I'm I'm sort of under the gun, and now I I need to, so you think more about being sent than you think about the wall-crashing love of of Jesus. And and so, but to see it the other way, as though we're on the outside, as though God saw Christians living in this crazy place called Minneapolis uh, 2,000 years later, and knowing that the gospel would get here eventually, when as he said to his 11, go, all of a sudden we look at this more through the lens of, man, God loves me. He really wanted me to hear that he's alive. And, and so he said these things. It, but it's the same with the, the walking through wall motif. If the first or worst only thing we think about when we read that whole thing of Jesus going through the wall is, Cool, I can't wait to do that myself. Instead of God has done that for me to get to me in love, then we miss the point. We miss the whole point, actually, the whole point. So, the only way to be effective sent ones uh, and sent churches uh, as Christians is to know that we are constantly being moved toward by the risen Christ who shows us his scars, not as an ascetic religious ideal to follow. He doesn't say, where are your scars? Uh, but gives us a demonstration of love and a call then to share that message to all who will hear, even if it comes with persecution and hatred and misunderstanding or even death. Um, because in the end, nothing will keep us from the love of God, uh, not even not even death. And so... Um, I just want to wrap up today with uh, going back to verse 23 and um, kind of in the spirit then of what Jesus is saying there with that authority piece of Jesus um, sharing his authority with the church to grant forgiveness of sins. Um, as one of your pastors, uh, let me just step into that a little bit here for for your benefit and your consolation, and say, if you believe in Jesus, you are forgiven. That you're forgiven. Uh, whether you believe in, in, in him for the millionth time or for the first time today, you're completely forgiven of all of your sins. If you believe and trust in Jesus alone, you're forgiven. There's no ifs, ands, or buts. Uh, you, you are okay with, with God. Uh, there, there's no, and this is additionally good news, that there's no locks or sins or disbeliefs or fears that can make him renege on his promise to always be with you and never leave you or forsake you. Uh, Easter says, if you were here last week, I think we talked about this, but Easter says, love is stronger than death. There, there really is a power greater than death. And it's not just this, uh, uh, you know, sentiment for us. It's not just a movie quote. Does the Princess Bride say that, doesn't it? Like, uh, death can only uh, delay love for a while or something, or I forget the quote, but anyway. We have our stories, right? We have our stories that we love and we, we watch on repeat because it, it does something uh, for us and uh, warms us. But at the end of the day, it's just kind of sentiment because there's no power. But the love of God is eternal. It, it, it's, it's stronger than death because it went to hell and back uh, to, to, to pluck us up from there. And so I would say to you guys, I mean, like we do every week, but uh, but in the spirit of of today's passage, go and live your life in peace, uh, knowing that your worst enemies, your worst nightmares, have been resolved and defeated. Uh, Go go in peace and, and, and know that you can be assured of your salvation on the basis of the cross and the raised body of Jesus, not how much your life changes after you receive it. So, the, the lie or temptation you probably have already heard, but if you haven't, you will, is that to the question of how do I know I'm a Christian? Um, the, the lie is, well, is your life changing? Is your life different from when you, when you were before a Christian? Like, have you performed some good works or not? Um, that, that's the lie. That's the thing that Jesus and the, the, all of Scripture is trying to distance ourselves from to say, do you really want to trust in yourself? Do you really want to start to measure your life based on how good your spirituality is and then say, from that, I can be assured that I'm good in the end? Like, is that really what you want? And I don't think it is. You know, if it is, well, then don't. Like, that's a terrible faux Christianity uh, that you're clinging. It's not real anyway. Uh, come away from it. Move back from that and say, the way I can be assured that I'm going to live forever is by nothing I ever do pre- or post-conversion, but by looking at the cross and staring into the empty tomb and saying, God did something here for me. And it's bigger than me. It happened before I even lived. And the message of it is going to be here long after I die. Uh, it's not about me. Life's not about you. The gospel's not about you. And your, your assurance of salvation's not about you. So I, I, I would say... Please stop thinking that. I'm saying this myself as well. Please stop living that type of faux Christianity that reverts back to works. Starts well with grace, but doesn't end well with grace. It ends poorly. With how are you doing? How are you? Are are you living a life worthy? Showing devotion to God. Um, The way you know God's love is not by that. The way you know you're going to make it in the end. Again, what's the crux? Right. At the end of the day, the crux is, what are you doing with Jesus? Is he enough for you, or is he just a little bit of something? Is he on the shelf, or is he everything? Um, At the end of the day, then, for Christian or not, in the room, and myself, uh, all of us, this is the message we're confronted with at the end of the day, is Jesus is alive. He crashed through walls and locked doors. Uh, He discarded old covenants and laws, setting them aside. He tore through your sin. Nothing you did could keep him away. Isn't that amazing? That's how much he loves you guys. Um, Don't graduate from that. How could you? How could you even? Receive it, grow in it, be strong in it, breathe it in. Let it be, in fact, let it be breathed on you by the one who gives life to dead things uh, and and be raised with him now, spiritually and, and forever physically uh, when he returns, let me pray. Father, thank you uh, for this passage today. Thank you for this Easter Sunday, uh, a reminder that uh, death is whimpering in the corner of the empty tomb, having lost the battle of the ages uh, to the Son of God. Uh, thank you that uh, we have uh, all the hope in the universe now because of that uh, to live forever, no matter how bad our life gets, no matter how bad of Christians we think we are. Um, no matter how many lies we listen to about judging ourselves uh, based on um, religious or moral merit uh, as we live out our faith in a day-to-day basis, uh, at the end of the day, that's not really it. It's not about that. Uh, it's about you and what you have to give us constantly. You are, you are the daily bread, not us. Uh, so help us to feast on the, the body and the blood of Jesus Christ every day. And, uh, and to believe in the wall-crashing, uh, gate-crashing, lock-picking love of Christ uh, that, that comes and gets us in our despair, in our disbelief even, our bad theology. Man, it's, it's a crazy the things you overcome uh, to get to us. And, and I pray for myself and everyone here that we would grow in our knowledge of that because we, we, we can't know it too much. It's impossible. We can't go deep enough into it in this life. There's always more of you uh, behind the next door. And so uh, help us in community and with each other and with an open Bible in hand to continue searching these things out that we might bask in your grace forever. And and then to be sent uh, through all of that, to be sent with right motive, uh, with the best news in the universe uh, to more and more people in this city uh, and and beyond. In Christ we pray, amen.